Hosanna was the words that were used on the day that Jesus came riding in to Jerusalem. Uh, Hosanna means he saves. And for those who were singing that song that day, I'm sure for them they felt that they were, that they were going to be saved from the tyranny of Rome uh, that was in control of Israel at that time. Uh, but this was not going to be the case. He was coming to die, but to die and save all of mankind, all peoples from all over the world from the sins that they had committed so that they could be reconciled back to the Father God. And that is the celebration of this day and the celebration of this week is that we have a king that entered in, that came so that you and I could have hope for a relationship with the Father God. My name is Tony Hunt. I'm pastor here at LEFC. I welcome you here this morning. This is a very, very special week. I also want to forewarn, if you are coming next Sunday, uh, there's going to be a little bit of upheaval uh, as we'll begin doing some of the earth movement on this side of our parking lot. But I want you to know that there is additional parking that is going to be made available, and that's a stone lot at the far end. For those of you who've been around LAC for a long time, you know about the stone lot. Uh, we got rid of our stone lot about three years ago. Uh, we're, we're bringing it back. We missed it so much. Uh, and so we are going to have it, and so that will be available to add some additional parking. So traffic flows will be different next week. We are in the midst of a series uh, where we're taking a look through the book of Luke and looking at Jesus and how he lived, and then considering how he lived, how it impacts how you and I would live. So we're taking him as the example of how God would live in human skin, and which he did through Jesus, that we would then know how to handle situations that are around us. And so we're taking a look at life as Jesus lived it so that we can live it out. And today we're looking at divine anger management. And so if you came in this morning just a little bit peeved by how the family got ready for church or how the traffic happened on your way here, or if something just like what happened to me, my dog decided to get up very early this morning and wake me up to play, not to go outside. That wasn't, that was 45 minutes too soon, and so I immediately was feeling a little anger uh, for having been woke up, and, uh, but God reminded me of what I'm speaking on today, so I did not sin in my anger. So I, now that that's out there in that confession, you'll feel good about who you're listening to this morning. Having said that, why don't you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. And uh, if you do not have a Bible, our ushers will be glad to provide you one. And if you do not own one, you can actually keep this uh, Bible as a gift from us. So yes, we're going to talk about anger here this morning. And, uh, and I just want to acknowledge that, that likely most of us have had to deal with anger in various forms throughout our lives. I don't know about you, but I have a button that immediately turns on anger. If somebody comes and flicks me in the back of the head, that is an anger button. Like just immediately, I feel, now don't come up to me after the service and do that. <laughs> I just realized who this crowd is. Some of you in this room just might do that. Um, you don't want to see my wrath. Just kidding. But uh, it, there's just something about getting flicked in the back of the head that just sends this little shoot of anger through me. Did anybody else relate to that? Yeah, it's like, yes, it, it happens. And, 
And so at this Christian school that I went to, I went to a small Christian school between fourth and ninth grade that was in our local church. It was a very tiny school, as in K through 12, about 50 kids at, at, at best. And so, uh, but in that school, the pastor's wife, if you were doing something she did not like, she would flick you in the back of the head. And that just would send me off. And, and of course, that would be in trouble if you did allow it to manifest into some kind of rage. So you have to hold it under your skin. But man, that just would make me angry. And so you would have to avoid getting in trouble. And, and for others of you, there might just be things that set you off by what people do. Maybe there's that coworker. They do the same thing every day. And it's just over time grates on you, and, and, and it makes you angry every time they do it. Or maybe you're still at home, and you have parents, and they do things that just make you angry. And I'm looking over towards my son. Anyway, uh, there are things that just happen that sets us off. And, and the key is, how do you handle it? Now, I've gone through Scripture, and I was looking at some of these texts, and I've got some observations, but let me read some of those passages found in the Bible that speak to anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 will be on the screen. It says, in your anger, don't sin. Do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, anger, in other words don't let it fester and grow inside of you. So don't sin in your anger. And don't let the sun go down on it. In other words, stew on it. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming. So anger, when acted out, can be very cruel and it can overwhelm when you allow it to turn to fury. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to their anger or their rage. In other words... A fool, someone who's not smart or is stupid enough to allow what they're feeling inside to explode, that's what we call a fool. So if I had allowed the flick in the back of the head to cause the explosion, that would not have gone well for me. Now, for different things, we can say there are moments where maybe that full vent or rage is justified. Perhaps, or maybe not. I remember the one time I can honestly say I used my fists. It was a moment on that uh, bus filled with the students of that small Christian school. And at this time, I'm in eighth grade. So I'm about 13, 14 years old. I'm sitting in the next to the last row on the bus. My sister is sitting in the row in front of me. And one of my friends, Mark, was sitting in the row behind me. Mark was one of these excitable types. Mark was speaking a bunch of stupid stuff and was being very gregarious and out loud and obnoxious. And my sister had clearly had enough. And she turned around and said to Mark, Mark, shut up and sit down. Now, Mark was a ninth grader. My sister was a seventh grader. Mark did not appreciate that moment, so he stood up and said a name that would be referencing a girl, but in a derogatory manner, and I can't say that word now. You understand what I mean, right? He says that word, but he's saying it over the top of my head to my sister. Now, 
did my sister have a good point towards Mark? Yes. But somebody calling my sister that name sent me off. And I turned around and stood up and said, you cannot call my sister that name. He stands up and says, well, what are you going to do about it? And I punched him. Now, for, for those of you who are still growing up under influences, I would tell you, whoever just clapped is not guiding you well. <laughs> it will not go well for you in a situation to use the fist. Now, my anger was justified, but I chose the wrong actions. Right? There's another part of this story. On this same bus ride, one of the chaperones was my father. He was sitting towards the front of the bus, and while I am tussling with Mark, I feel this hand of authority come on my shoulder and shove me in my seat, to which Mark began to leap forward as an opportunity to come on top, and then in a total Matrix-like move, my dad goes from pushing me down on my seat to throwing his body around and sitting right on Mark. And that's how the bus ride continued for the next 20 to 30 minutes till we got back to the school. And then I had to give an account later as to what happened, and that's a whole nother part of the story. But the point is, is that anger definitely got a hold of me. I'm not a fighter by nature, but anger transformed me into something that is not my normal M.O., and I would say that that is true for all of us. If anger takes over and it ends up coming to full fruition and you will become something that you typically are not. That's just what anger does. The other aspect about anger that is detrimental is that if you let, as these texts we're talking about, if you let anger boil inside of you and you cling to it and you let it continue to manifest inside of you, it will also transform you. It is a cancer. I had a young man that interned for me. He had grown up in, in the youth ministry that I was the youth pastor of, and uh, he had gone away to college and while at college felt called into ministry. And, and I would say I would affirm his calling. He is doing ministry today. But he felt that he was called into youth ministry. So I ended up having him come and interning for us at our church. As part of that internship, it became abundantly clear to all of us that were investing in him that while ministry might be his calling, youth ministry probably is not his direction because he really struggled to have relationships with teenagers. And that's kind of an important attribute of a youth pastor. And so after the internship was done, the school that he was from, the university he was from, said that they wanted us to do a, a, a closing debrief of his internship with him and to share our honest assessments. So I basically share with them, we do and can affirm your calling to ministry, but we would challenge the idea that you are called to youth ministry. We believe that there are some things that make that not maybe your best assignment. And it was a difficult conversation to have. We were very gracious. We were very gentle in the way we shared it, but we had to be honest with them. To which his parents, 
Schedule the meeting with me after this. And what you need to know is that his father was one of the elders of the church. And so as a youth pastor, I'm getting called into an elder's office moment. And uh, in there, the, the meeting took a different turn than I expected. He thanked me for sharing honestly the situation with his son. And that they agreed with our assessments, but they felt like they couldn't tell him directly. So basically, the difficult conversation was punted down the road to someone else, of which I then had to do. Now, the reason why I share this story with you is that five years later, I haven't seen this student in five years. Five years later, he shows up in church, he comes up to me, and he just says this phrase, I forgive you. I haven't seen him in five years, but he was, he made a beeline to me after the service and came up to me and says, I forgive you. I'm like, for what? I haven't seen him for five years and I certainly didn't recall anything I'd ever done to him, but he proceeds to say that the occasion when we shared some truth with him was so hurtful that he became angry and for the last five years, he had been getting counsel for his anger. It had undone him and that he it almost incapacitated him because he allowed this moment to become something of anger and it changed him and transformed him. We were able to sit down and work through it and I believe he is freely operating in ministry today, the last I heard. But for five years, he was rendered ineffective because he allowed anger to take root in his soul. So this issue of anger is something to take seriously. In fact, in Galatians uh, chapter 5, most of you, when you hear that chapter, if you know the Bible, that's the chapter where the fruit of the Spirit is listed. Peace, love, joy, goodness, kindness, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. But in the verses just preceding that, it gives you fruits of the flesh, where it says that the fruits of the flesh are things that, and it mentions several things, but look at the ones I've highlighted. It says hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, dissension, and factions. Those are the fruits of somebody who's not living by the Spirit, but you can also account that almost every one of those are connected to anger. Anger has an interesting place in the Bible. In fact, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, it says that the Lord, doesn't say never gets angry, is actually slow to anger and great in power. So as I was looking through all the different texts of anger found in the Bible, I was able to kind of make some observations, and I want to share them with you. The first one I really had never considered before. And as this, the first biblical observation concerning anger is, it's not forbidden. You can look at all 262 references towards anger in the Bible, and not a single one of them tells you, do not be angry, or anger is a sin. You will find such references as Ephesians 4 that I began with, where it says, do not sin in your anger, and you'll see, be slow to anger, but you will find plenty of references where God has anger, but his way of handling it is very different from you and I. 
So first biblical observation is that anger is not forbidden. Number two, by looking at these texts, it's clear by the warnings concerning anger that anger can be relationally destructive. So from looking at the Bible text, those 262 texts that you'll find referring to anger, that it's basically warning you that anger can destroy relationships. Thirdly, anger then, based on, again, these various texts, can also destroy you internally. As I shared from that intern that I had, it was hindering him for five years, rendered incapacitated because he was angry. Unfounded, but nonetheless angry. Lastly, by observations and looking at these texts, what you'll also find to be true is you'll never see anger as the source of God's actions. There's always a vision of something greater. There's always a motive of something better. Anger is not the source of his actions. You can see that in the text we're going to go to today, that there is anger on display by Jesus, but it is not the source of his actions. So let's go there to Luke chapter 19. Yes, this is Palm Sunday, and you're thinking this is a strange message to be on Palm Sunday. But this story we're looking at today is directly connected to this day. You see, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on the donkey's colt, he came over the Mount of Olives. And as soon as you come over the crest of the Mount of Olives, you can see the Temple Mount in its full glory. And it says that Jesus was overcome with emotion because he says, how many prophets have we sent you, the Father and the Son, that we have sent you to try to help you see that we want a relationship with you, that God desires to be reconciled to you, only for you to kill and harass all those prophets. And here Jesus is coming into that, that same city to provide salvation. Yes, Hosanna is to provide salvation for them, but they're thinking again, that it's, it's a salvation that is merely a, mer a militarial uh, type of a, of a victory. And, and yet, that's not what he's coming for. He's coming to reconcile and to provide love and a loving bridge between man and God. So Jesus comes into that city, and the gate he goes into directly accesses the temple court. So when you come into the temple court, you'll see that all these money changers are there. But on this moment, Jesus came in in the time of day where the temple court was empty because time had elapsed. It was beyond the 5 o'clock hour, if you will. So nobody was there. And it says that in, in, in the book of Matthew that when he came into that, or into the book of Mark, when he came into that temple court area and, and he looked around, he looked around the entire temple, even though it was empty, and you could tell the wheels are turning. Because he goes back out of the city, back over the Mount of Olives to Bethany to spend the night, only to come back in the next morning. So now Monday morning, he comes back into the city, and that's where we have our text today. So let's begin in verse 45 of chapter 19. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling 
It is written, he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Let me stop there. We, if you take the text found in Matthew chapter 21, Mark chapter 11, and then this text in Luke, you'll get a lot of details as to what happened in this moment. So what we know from taking the three texts combined is that Jesus came into that same gate, into the temple courts, but now it's filled. But it's filled with people selling things for worship, selling things for trinkets, for memories of having made the journey to Jerusalem. But what is offensive going, that's going on in this exchange is that it was being sold at a price that was robbing people. You see, it was a, a, a money-making scheme by the priests where they were profiting off of all the things being sold in that court. And, and so the money that, that was being charged for the doves or the lambs or other trinkets were being sold at such a great price that it was impoverishing the people that had made a long journey to come and worship and to bring sacrifices. This infuriated Jesus. And so therefore, he began to drive away these people. If you go into other parts of the text, it says that he violently turned over their tables and shooed them away. And I love what is found in Mark chapter 11, because it kind of gives you a little bit of a, a mental picture of, of the actual attitude and spirit of Jesus in this moment. It says that after having turned over their tables, he would not let them even carry merchandise through the area. Which basically implies that after having turned all the tables over and shooed everybody away, that some of the people that had their stuff left in there that, that had scattered are thinking, wow, my money box is still in there. And, uh, and there's like $500 worth of shekels in there. I, I, I need to go back in and get it. And so somebody so daring decides to walk back in, even though it's just Jesus in that big empty court area, and goes back in, and it literally says that he shooed those people away. He guarded the gate. If you can mentally picture that when, uh, uh, I've, I've seen, I forget which movie it was, a pit bull came into this room and, and, it was, and, and it was driving everybody away and then when people tried to come back in, he would bark to keep them out. No, this is my space. Jesus had that same tenacious spirit. He tipped over all the tables. He drove people away. In order for them to even hear, he had to be yelling because the courts were filled with people. And so he's yelling. He's tipping things over. It's creating a stir. He shoot everybody away to where they're outside the court, but they're able to look in through the gates. Who will dare walk back in now? Then he, with his actions, he combined them with words by saying, this was supposed to be a place to come and pray, but instead, it's become a place to dwell as a thief. It's a house of thieves. His words were an indictment. So the question becomes, why after all the experiences of Jesus where many different times in the region of Galilee and areas surrounding Jerusalem, people tried to bait Jesus into arguments? People tried to bait Jesus into getting into, yes, fights and quarrels. 
but he would not take the bait. So why now does Jesus allow an expression of anger to be seen? So what were his reasons? And it's not just that there was robbery going on. There was something greater that was bothering him. First of all, what was, what was creating such a, a, a depth of anger for Jesus was that these men and these priests and these sellers were making a mockery of God's name. They were making a mockery of God's name. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 16, it says this, I have chosen, this is God speaking, I have chosen this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. This was the word spoken from God to Solomon when they were dedicating the newly built temple. That God's saying, this temple will bear my name. It will be as if it's mine and me. And my eyes and my heart will always be there. So, if the intent of a facility that was, not only was it God's name on it, but we know that God gave the designs for that temple, and we know from, from moments where prophets were allowed to see images of heaven that this temple was actually a shadow of the greater throne room of God. So it literally is a smaller version of God's throne room. So this small place here on the face of the earth was going to bear God's name. He was the architect of it. He's the designer of it. And it's a small replica of the greater throne room of God. So this was a very precious place. It was a place where God made his spot where man could encounter him and he could encounter man. So it was important. And so when you have the Son of God come to that very temple that bears his Father's name, and that house, which is a design of the throne room of which Jesus had been part of for all of eternity, and he sees it being used in a mockery level, it became personal. In the same way, what was done to my sister on that bus that day created anger for me. It got personal because it was my sister didn't matter if she was maybe over-speaking. It didn't matter that maybe my act, but the reality was anger hit because it was family. And it was my family. And in this case, it's the Father God, Yahweh, whose house had been designed by him, had his name on it, whose eyes, his ears, his heart was on this place, and it's being used in an offensive way towards his father, then of course the son of that living God would be offended. Number two, it wasn't just the mockery of God's name, but it was the aspect of its purpose. It was to be a house of prayer. And instead, it was a place for making money for the priests. Wearsby, a commentarian, says this. He said, instead of praying for people, which is what the priest role was for, was to pray on behalf of the nations, instead the priests were praying on people. Instead of praying for them, they are praying on them. This was offensive because the priestly order was given clear instructions as to their roles on behalf of the people, and they were offensively carrying it out. They were pocketing things for themselves. 
It's for this thing that, that we have chosen here at LAFC that our pastors are not allowed to sell things. We do not want to use our influence for creating a better back pocket. We want to make sure that you know that the thing that matters most that you receive from us is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you mix money and worship together, it will corrupt. It will not stay the course of the intended path of worship. And so these priests were pocketing extra funds, even though they were more than taken care of by the rules established by the temple. They were going to receive money from the people as part of their worship, but they were taking beyond what was intended. So you have a mockery of the name of God. You have a mockery of the house and its purpose. And then thirdly, and this may not be as easily known to you, but the place where this particular uh, selling of funds and making money was going on was in the place called the Court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the outer court around the temple that was the one place that those who were non-Jewish could go. The explicit purpose of that place was so that the peoples of the world could come to that spot, be near the worship of God, to be near the teaching about God, so that they can know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. So the place where they would be told and taught and modeled the, the existence and the, and the purpose and the expression of God was being distorted before their eyes. They couldn't see anything different from what they had seen in their pagan temples. They saw the same thing in their pagan temples. Money, idols, trinkets, greed, jealousy, envy. All the fruits of pagan temples are now happening in the court of the Gentiles. And so instead of encountering who God is and realizing who God is, they saw a distorted picture of similarity to pagan gods. Instead of being evangelized and having their hearts drawn, they're being turned off as that nothing is any different here. So was Jesus rightfully angry? Yes. They mocked God's name. They changed the purpose from prayer to making money. And the evangelism, the teaching about who God is and his desire for all peoples was being distorted and made to look like paganism. So Jesus had the right to be angry. But now to my biblical observation... Did Jesus operate in a fashion where anger was the source of his action? Because the Bible explicitly says that anger is not to be the source of our action. Anger comes. And I'm so glad that we don't have a, a verse that says that anger is sin immediately. Because anger just happens. Somebody flicks me in the back of the head. I can't help the emotive immediately being felt, being anger. I can't help that when something happens around me that's injustice, that anger is the first impulsive thought. Anger just happens. It's, it's an uninvited emotion. But where anger becomes problematic is if it's the source of your actions. So let's test this for a moment with Jesus. Did he sin in his anger? 
At the end of this passage that we read in Luke 19, look what it says in verse 47. It says, every day, so from this moment, so we have Sunday, he comes in on a donkey into the temple courts, they're empty. He comes Monday morning, he comes in and, and clears the temple out and, and, and causes them to not be able to come back in. But now that you have a cleaned room, what happens? Verse 47, every day, that week, every day, he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. In Matthew chapter 21 and in Mark, it also says that Jesus not only went every day that week to teach at the temple, but he began to actually do something pretty special. He began to heal people in numbers, in much number. In fact, to the point where children began to enter the temple, which was, by the way, not a common practice at that time. But children began to fill the temple area. And what did the children do? they began to sing songs of worship because, it says, because they realized that a great man who was teaching things that, that, that caused them to have life with his words, and then he was healing people that had been long distraught and, and downtrodden, and they're being set free, and these children realized there's greatness in the temple, and they began to worship God. The priests began to try to tamp it down because they realized, and you can read all this in Matthew 21, they, they realized that the influence of Jesus was growing too strong for them. And so they wanted these songs to go away, but the songs got louder. And then Jesus says, how can you keep the children from singing when they know who God is? So Jesus, and the way he handled his anger, it was that he didn't just cleanse the temple and that be the source and be like, well, that felt good. I've been wanting to do that for the past 100 years. Now I finally got to do it. You pleased with me, God? You pleased with me, Father? No. He cleared the temple and then began to do the very thing the temple was designed for, to teach and to bring about worship. The healing that took place must have been profound because it says that the, that the priests were alarmed because they realized they had no ability now to stand against them. Hence, the private plot with Judas. What I also love about this change of the temple is that not only did Jesus bring about its purposes, so his source was the love for his father. That was the source of his actions that day when he cleared the temple. They loved the father so much he, he defended his name, but it was also the love for the people that he didn't just clean, cleanse the temple. He brought about its purposes and began to love on the people as well as love on the father. So what can we learn from Jesus in this moment? I believe there are three things that this text teaches us about how to handle anger. Number one, anger that is in action needs to be directed at the right things. Anger that we hold on to needs to be directed at the right things. Anger that we give a second thought to needs to be directed at the right things. Anger that we hold on to, anger that, that causes us to be like cancer and die from within, that are over things that are selfishly motivated or my pride has been hurt. Those are the things that anger is misplaced. 
What about anger for the right things as Jesus had? He was angry that the name of God was belittled. When was the last time when you heard somebody say, oh my God, and you felt a tinge inside your soul? When was the last time you heard somebody say Jesus Christ, but in a profound way, that you didn't just want to feel like your skin was crawling off of you and to respond to correct? Too often we only feel anger when maybe we were embarrassed by someone or they did something that we didn't like that hurts us and platforms them. You see, I think anger that, that is allowed to have any consideration for direction is one that, where anger needs to be placed in the right things. Secondly, our actions, when we do decide to act, are to be constructive not destructive. Jesus didn't come in and destroy the temple. He came and rebuilt it. He rebuilt it towards its purpose. His motivation was love for the Father and love for the people because that was the place where those two would come together. Too often we let anger be that rage where we let it vent to its full form and we destroy relationships. We destroy connections. We destroy the opportunity to be heard because we let anger be the definition of our response. Number three, anger is not a place to dwell, but rather give it away under submission to God. When we feel anger, even if it's at the right things, we surrender our actions. We submit our actions to God. Let him direct how we're to respond. Yes, anger is something that can show on our face. But if you choose to use that as your energy for how you handle something, you will actually hinder something more greatly. So we can't let it become a cancer to our soul. We can't hold on to it as a means of comfort where we, we realize we have righteous anger and so we, we embrace it like a child and we hold it near to us only to have it eating away. No, we give it to God. We surrender it to him. Too often, anger defines us rather than in spite of righteous anger and justified anger, love being our course of action. Love for something greater, even in Jesus' response when he was turning those tables over. Love was the source of his actions. And it was proven by the results. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good, always. And even in this example, Jesus, you did not sin in your anger but you submitted to the will of the Father and that will was a place of worship, a place that honored the name of God, a place where the Gentiles could hear the good news about a loving creator God. So Lord, as we are the walking temples now for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, when we bear that name, may we realize the importance of keeping righteousness before us, that we do not belittle the name of God, but that we're tenaciously protective of God's love for others and the ability for others to see the love of God. 
So God, where anger may be having an, an inappropriate place in our souls, will you confront us where anger is misplaced? Confront us where anger maybe is dwelling and we're holding on to it and caressing it and keeping it for ourselves so that we can be justified. God, confront us in that and help us to release it so that we can begin to act with construction, not destruction. So heal us, Lord, because we're in need of healing. And then defend those emotions that want to come back and say they have no place here anymore. Bring us to that place, oh holy God. So a big part of today's theme is understanding that the temple was built so that it could be a place where God and man could intersect, where there could be worship, where they could learn the heart of God. Today, that temple is no longer necessary, necessary because of what Jesus did. This coming Friday will be the day where we acknowledge the, the saving sacrifice that Jesus did being the perfect lamb. So if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never had a personal relationship with the Father God, know that he tenaciously loved you, that he removed anything that could be a barrier from that relationship being able to happen. It's a matter of acknowledging your need for him and believing in him being the provided way through the Son of Jesus Christ. That's the week we celebrate, and so we bring that confession that he is the risen Savior, the one who saves us all for those who receive him. With that in mind, Jesus is the model for how we handle life, especially when it's difficult and love enters, and anger enters in. But Psalm 145 says this, be slow to anger, but rich in love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it says love is not easily angered. You see, when love is the source of all of our actions, even when anger comes because we love someone, we don't let the anger decide how we make the action. We let love decide who wins. So let the love of God penetrate you, even in those dark places where maybe anger has been kept, and let God redeem that and change you. He doesn't mean for you to live a life where cancer is eating you from within through this thing called anger. He wants to relieve that. If you'd like a relationship with Jesus Christ and you want to pray with someone, we'll have people underneath the cross over here to my right, your left. They'd be glad to pray with you. I will also be up front as well. But in this week, may you understand and know the heart of God and the heart that God has for the world because that's what's on display with the celebrations of this week. And in Jesus' name I say that. Amen. You're dismissed.